Welcome to the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Brunch is being served, and I am your host, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime, the one and only. Patrick Martins. Thanks, Katie. You sound sexy today. It's because something is wrong with my... <laughs> something is wrong with my throat, but it doesn't hurt, so I don't care. Yeah, I love that. I love that smoky voice, don't you? Well, I want to say congratulations to you and Jack on the um, producing and writing the first ever Best of Heritage Radio Network CD, which you Came can download great. on our homepage. Yep. It is really 26 minutes of awesomeness. Of total awesomeness. And I got to say, uh, my partner there, Jack Inslee, is uh, the editor with the mostest, man. The kid can really cut That's... cut his tape. He knows what he's doing. It's, I mean, it was great. Best of features, you know, Jessica Harris yeah. uh, on Taste of the Past talking about the origin of High on the Hog. Yep. Talks uh, Dave Arnold talking about Bellota and feeding and the importance of feeding on We have taste. Temple Grandin from our show. Who is great. Every time She's I... She's so perfect. People just yeah. smile when they Love hear her, her voice. Love her so, so much. It was originally going to be the best of Jack Inslee sponsor drops, but Katie kind of fought me on that one. <laughs> okay. Well, that's unfortunate. There's always chance yeah. for a second yeah, one. Yeah, right? Exactly. We are going to do this every month, Jack, so we can, we can do a best of drops. Um, but well, yeah, there's some great programming on there. We have some really interesting people. I mean, Nicole Taylor and the definitive Red Velvet Cake was a riot. That was really fun. And Erica Wides, who's like making a case for uh, frog legs being the new chicken wing. I mean, and I just love that. warning us against that. polar bear liver, which yeah. is poisonous, in case you're ever in a jam. <laughs> Too funny. Good stuff on there, though. Definitely worth downloading. Definitely worth listening. To. Yeah, and now we have a, we have a great show today. Actually, we we're sure gonna uh, an old friend, someone I've known for years, uh, Andrew Knowlton, is in studio. Andrew Knowlton, the BA foodist, the BA foodist from Bon Appetit magazine. <laughs> you know, Andrew, you don't know this about me, but I have been following your career for a long time because I used to pitch books to you all the time. Oh yeah, I am a former flack for the Food Network and for Anthony Bourdain. Ah, uh-huh. what year did that stop? <laughs> yeah, I haven't pitched you in quite a while. Uh, you've grown up a lot since then because you were you were a cub then. You were literally I was a young buck. He's you still were like a young a, buck for the industry. Still a very young buck, and uh, you know, just as cute as that picture shows. Oh, by the way, you. everybody. <laughs> Although your hair is disappointingly yeah. short now, um, but uh, yeah, no, you were you were just a young little. You were. Barely, straight still out of school. Very wet behind the ears. Yeah. All right, Jesus, this is getting <laughs> out of control. We used to stick pins in our voodoo doll when you didn't take our stories. <laughs> I'm surprised you're still alive. Right so now. we're also going to be talking to uh, Andrea Rusing, who wrote a book on Southern food traditions called "Cooking in the Moment." That's a beautiful book, by the way. That is a really pretty really nice recipes like if i i have a rule about writing cookbooks andrew you don't know this but i used to be a professional cook so it's a lot i don't know about you uh, she used to be a professional butcher, I a butcher. which is more interesting I, I have many many back when butchering wasn't cool uh yes exactly <laughs> back when we were doing commodity meat and thinking it was really great that we were buying our our beef from montfort of colorado <laughs> only to find out you know 15 years later that that was the first feedlot crap sort of the anti-christ <laughs> of the whole thing <laughs> So great. But um, no, uh, Andrea's book fulfills my criteria for buying a cookbook, which is if there are five recipes that I find interesting enough that I really have a driving need to make them, I buy that book. Mm-hmm. If it has less than five recipes that I want, then I don't buy it because I, I do have quite a she was collection. She was just in the uh, Bon Appetit Kitchens, I want to oh, say, awesome. two weeks ago and cooked us 
um, kind of a Reese BC, like a risotto of sorts. Um, delicious. Lovely well, that's one. awesome. And I buy yeah, that book. Yeah, she's very, very nice. Because I, I say if there's a shortage of one thing in the world, it's recipe books. So it's hey, exciting Hey, some of us actually cook, Patrick. <laughs> Patrick and I have an ongoing thing, Andrew, in case you didn't know that, about why do you need to cook, says Patrick, when no, you no, can no. eat out. Well, so my, point is, my point is, is, you know, Michael Pollan and, you know, guys who are like heroes of mine, but, you know, there's this insistence on if you put a, you know, a kale farmer's market in, you know, downtown Detroit, that all of a sudden people are going to start eating eat and cooking at home. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, like, what would be interesting is if uh, Mario Batali or Tom Colecchio started, you know, or David Chang opened 50 fast food franchises because, you know, a pork bun sandwich in the end would come in less than a Big Mac meal. So I think you have to, yeah. if people want service, you got to play the game that's out there by but the rules. fast that's food out there. could be improved. And actually, in coming weeks, we are going to hook up with a fast food company that's based out in Oregon. The name of which now I think it's called Burgerland, right? Remember Burgerville. Burgerville, that has they like good about yeah, they have good everything and they source we should very talk carefully. About that. It's sourced locally, yeah. Yeah, and um, and they've been around for a long time, as it turns out. And that, by the way, came to me not because I'm so smart, but because somebody who listens to our show, a lovely woman named Hannah Wallace, who moved from Williamsburg out to Portland, she suggested it as a um, as a possible topic. Jack, us, could so. you tag that? It's official. We have a listener. We have a listener. Her <laughs> name is Hannah Wallace, and she's actually. She reviewed our show. Could you send a thank you to Several Hannah Wallace? Times. Her first review said, Patrick and Katie, those very silly and really long-winded, have incredible <laughs> guests. <laughs> and then her next review was a lot more nice. Andrew, I guess we got better. When this green light goes on, that's when you can talk. Yeah. Uh, all the rest of the time. <laughs> Actually, let's see you too. <laughs> I know, we're horrible. We also okay. have uh, Bruce Weinstein and Mark yes. Scarborough who wrote Goat Milk and Cheese. And, and uh, also had a fantastic editorial in the Washington Post about three weeks ago. They kind of copied of your editorial. Well, we're not going to say that, though, even though I sent them mine and they didn't comment on it. <laughs> You, you wrote the definitive that. goat story. I and wrote now the definitive goat story <laughs> in the March issue of Edible Manhattan. You work with the company, Heritage Foods. We're blessed to have you. You work two days a week there. And um, you are working with a company that's actually going to go forward and sell 500 yeah, or 1,000 of these goats. Yeah, we have the goat goats. project in place. Yeah, yeah. we're going to make it happen. We already have 500 goats committed. So, yeah. Yeah, it's very exciting. That's why you need cookbooks and food magazines is to teach people how to cook goats. For the goat. That would be very interesting. Yeah. Okay, so let's take a break right here. And I want to come back and, and come back and can talk we talk about, about burgers? Can we add that to our list? That sure. was a very interesting topic. But there's so much more. service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of CookingIssues.com, will discuss new and innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients. Call in with your own questions to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues. Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. That was a great drop. 
Jack, you should have your own CD. Exactly. Yeah, we're going to do it. I want to just say before, um, that uh, music, and our music is Cherry Holmes, and I just heard Cherry Holmes is breaking up, that family. No. They're playing their last concert in Nashville, I believe, on May 3rd, and it was very, very sad, and um, anyway... Well, right. you know, we'll they'll be resurrected in various different incarnations, obviously. And talking about resurrection, today is Easter, and this whole week... <laughs> nice. This whole gold, week... Baby, I know, gold. wasn't that good? Very smooth. And this whole week has been all about those pagan... Really, I mean, everything comes from pagan ritual, and this is the rebirth of the year. So we had Passover at the beginning of the week, and now we have um, Easter today. And uh, so, so what are, know, whatever um, faith you enjoy, and I personally enjoy the pagan faith... Um, not that I enjoy any faith at all. So were you big into holidays, you and your well, family? Well, let's introduce our guest again. It's Andrew oh, yes. Knowlton, the, the BA foodist, um, somebody who has been uh, you know, reviewing restaurants now for, what, about eight, ten years, right? Ten years I've been. My, I just had, Jump actually Jiminy, right now boy. is ten-year anniversary at Bon Appetit. And you look like you just fucking Damn, graduated. Excuse time. me, just graduated from college. <laughs> If people stop saying that, then I'll I'll start worrying. Yeah, no, you really you. you. No, I started. Yeah, it was ten ten years. I was a um, editorial assistant. That's what I started meant. started down on the on That's the totem when I pole. Started sticking pins in your job. <laughs> yeah. So this is when um, Barbara Fairchild. Uh, yes, was Bar- in charge. Barbara Fairchild was kind of. Uh, my mentor, and then also Tanya Steele, who uh, yeah. went oh, on to really? yeah, she went on to Epicurious. She was the New York editor, and it was just her, I, and one other one other gal, and and she went on Epicurious. Now yeah. she's still there, winning awards. So how did you get that job? I mean, uh, how did you go forward? Because he's really cute. That was yeah, that was all it was. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna keep her away yeah. from me. Patrick well, doesn't yeah. like that. <laughs> she just dropped the f bomb. I can't believe it. <laughs> I know, I hardly ever do that on the air, too. Um, I was at NYU for graduate school, and uh, I'd been in New York. I used to work for a magazine called Lingua Franca, okay. which is now defunct. It was like an academic magazine. I remember that magazine. You remember that? Because I used to pitch books for that. It was pretty incredible it staff. Was a great, great. Tony magazine. Scott, A.O. Scott, who is the movie critic for the New York Times. Yes. Oh, wow. He was there, and a bunch of New Yorker people, way way smarter than I, um, were working there. So when that kind of went under, I um, was in school at the time, kind of doing two things at once. And something came through at NYU about an internship at BA, and I was kind of into food. And when I moved to New York, um, it kind of where are you from? That was what I do. I was I'm from Atlanta originally, okay. um, like our very own Nicole Taylor. The ATL, where the play is play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I was exposed to food, you know, in Atlanta, because we had a pretty cool ethnic scene on Buford Highway there, totally. which is kind of like the flushing of Queens. And okay. uh, that kind of just led into one thing. And so I got the gig at BA, and it kind of just got into it. And that was kind of like, you know, that would have been 99, 2000, and there there was not, you know, Eater or... Yeah. Uh, there wasn't a lot. I mean, it was just basically the food magazines... Food magazines, eGullet started up. eGullet, that was the big one. Yeah, and no then the one Food was, Network. People were barely on email. I mean, you know, yeah. you had. I mean, yeah. my I business. Mean, I mean, to speak about how Andrew and I met initially, which he doesn't remember, but of course I do <laughs> because I stick suck pins in his voodoo doll. But um, but uh, I was pitching food books among many others. But I had a lot of food clients, and when I first started in public relations, which was in two thousand. Uh, we did everything by fax yeah. and phone. 
and email didn't figure. Well, I mean, if you think all. about it, fax so, was a new thing in 1988 or, you know, 85. People were just getting it. So, I mean, we're just, people weren't really going to the internet for trends. They were just looking to see all this information. So it was exist. very early, very early. Yeah, it was very all. early on. And, and now it's kind of, for better or for worse, you know, exploded. And, you know, people put a dagger in the heart of a restaurant two days after it opens now. Yeah. Now, Bon Appetit, no, was it always the number one rated magazine? Because, I mean, people, you know, thought with Gourmet and all that. But actually... Bon Appetit had a readership. You guys have always had a bigger well, I don't know about rated, but... I'm saying <laughs> You've rated, always though. had yeah, yeah. a bigger circulation. No, we've always had a bigger else. circulation. We've always been around 1.6 million, which wow. is pretty big. And how much of that That's is really newsstand purchase versus subscription? You know, over the years, newsstand, which newsstands, you know, buying it at the airport or whatever, is that's kind of on the decline, um, just because I think people get their news through various ways, and that's always, that's why that's why we put so much thought into what are we going to put on the cover? Are we going to put a turkey on the November issue again? And the answer is yes. <laughs> I think we tried one year, and it was just, we got so many letters. And we still get letters. That's the, I mean, our readers the average age of our reader people think it's like 85 it's actually not 85 it's 88 it's 88 no no, no it it's, it's my age yeah it's 55 uh, it's a little bit lower than that actually i'd say probably i'd say your demographic is like 40 to 60 is right. your core Right. Well, what, actually, audience. let's ask Andrew. Because what is your core demographic? I'm, I'm just guessing. Andrew can. No, I think the average. No. I think average of magazines in general, in general, and then food magazines, Prince. like 47, like around okay. that. Um, and you know, that's that's the the print dilemma right now is how to attract. I'm going to say younger people, but just you know, people who do have their iPhones on them at all times, and you know, aren't rushing to the newsstand to buy magazines. Well, how much is Bon Appetit uh, creating an online presence? Because I know, for instance, Food Arts Magazine is about to launch a very major online uh, you know, issue of the magazine yeah. that will be quite different from Yeah, well, I mean, Condé Nast, who owns who owned Gourmet, and they and still own Gourmet still Live, and, and owns Bon, bon Appetit, Appetit and Vogue and all those. You know, they've their business is making magazines, and it's still the way they make money, is print. And so, to me, partly, like, we get criticized a lot, Connie Nast, about kind of being, I don't know if you want to say slow, or just trying to figure out the online game. But nobody's really done it, and how you do it and be financially successful and, and do that. So we have, like, we're working on an iPad app that would put the magazine, a digital version of the magazine, so that if there was a chicken recipe, you could press the picture of the chicken, and it would actually show you the recipe right. uh, well, that seems being pretty made. basic. But, but then people don't have to buy the magazine as much, or they still, it doesn't, how do you keep but it they from buy competing? The app. They buy the app, but, but but that's the thing, is like, how? I mean, are, are people going to buy the app? You know, are they going to pay for what? I mean, a subscription, a subscription to Bon Appetit, if you get it, you know, if you go to Amazon or wherever, is $10 for 12 issues. How do yeah. they do that? It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. It should be 50 or well, some eighty, right? Because I mean, that's still nothing to get. Nothing. That's well, if it was eighty dollars an they, issue, I mean, not to bore you with the publishing industry or anything. That's not but, boring at all. Actually, <laughs> people want to know that. It's it's you know, Conde Nast and most of the big magazine companies, Hirsch, uh, Hearst, and Hachette. You know, they're based on advertising dollars. That's where they make their money is the luxury advertising, and that's why a couple years ago, when we closed a bunch of magazines at Conde Nast. Because all that luxury advertising went away, so it kind of made 
I don't want to speak for Connie Nast if Cy Newhouse is listening right now, but um, and, and you, you know, know he's he listening. He's up in Oyster Bay right now. Pin he knows you're radio. on this. Like, his, he's like, hold the yacht for another people, hour. His people have send the thugs out presence. to Roberta's and rough that formerly long-haired kid up. Um, <laughs> so I think you know they're trying to figure that out, and and there's you know we're str- not struggling, but it's it's a whole new world out there and trying to figure out. And I think. You know, the elephant in the room for whenever I talk to people is that my former boss, Barbara Barbara Fairchild, who's been on this studio and has been very kind to lovely, lovely woman, gave me my start. And, you know, she left the magazine in October and the magazine, a lot of people don't realize this was based in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had, you were she had a bi-coastal. Here. Yes. She had bi-coastal. I was always in New York. Yeah, you and Tanya. Tanya. And we had a few other people based here. But so there was, um, they decided to go in a different direction, I think, um, after Barbara left. And they moved the magazine to New York. And basically for various reasons, didn't keep a lot of the other staff. A lot of them didn't want to move back because they used to, they were former New Yorkers who moved to L.A. for the good life and mm-hmm. didn't want to come back with children. So we basically, I mean, there's myself and maybe two other people from the old... Guard, or, really? Yeah, the old guard. So it's so you're very important to them because you, I mean, <laughs> there must be secrets or connections or... I'm, I'm always the one at the meeting when they come up with some great ideas like, uh, guys, we did that like a year ago, you know? <laughs> Yeah, or five years or ago. Or five years ago. Yeah. So you have history. So now we have, you know, Adam Rappaport, who's our new uh, editor in chief. Are you kidding? Yeah. From formerly of GQ. Yeah. And uh, Christine Mulkey, uh, who used to be at the Times. At the Times. Absolutely. If I recall correctly, this could be completely wrong, but didn't Adam Rappaport used to work at Time Out? He did. There you was know, a moment where my friend Michelle Recklin, who's not a friend, but I mean, I used to work with her. Her fiance at the time worked at Time Out magazine. And there was this time where all these. Germans were just being killed, like around New York City and all around the major cities. So they actually launched a project to send people to the top of the Empire State Building in Lederhosen just to see. Why were there German? What I don't know. It was like in Disney World, six people got killed. So they were Not really trying to edge people on to like try to get them in. And he, I thought Adam was involved with that. It was very. Funny. He was. He in, he was there um, when Adam Sachs, who's a great food writer, writes for Travel and Leisure, writes for Bon Appetit, and Brett Martin. They were all there. And before that, he worked at the James Beard Foundation with Mitchell Davis. I don't know if Mitchell's been Mitchell's on your show. Very, he's no, not I, been on um, our show yet. He was in the food performance studies class with Barbara Kirschenbach Gimblet. He's very smart. Very smart guy. Energy. We should definitely have him on, Patrick. So. Uh, We're ready so, for that now. Yeah, so he worked there. So it's a whole new team. And, you know, I don't know if Connie Nass, I, I wasn't given a mandate to... I mean, there's nothing wrong with the old Bon Appetit. Um, well, what happened then? I mean, besides wanting to move it to New York, wh- how? I mean, talk a little bit about the culture of changing of a guard. Yeah, and like, uh, what things? I mean, do you do change just to change it, or what things do you keep? What things do you throw out? Yeah, well, I think when when gourmet, um, well, when it was announced at gourmet, which you know, just for the record, was a bad day for everybody because I grew up with that magazine and I always compare it to like the Yankees and the Red Sox if you're a Red Sox fan and all of a sudden the uh, Yankees aren't playing baseball anymore it kind of takes away the fun not that you're competitive but there was you know passing people in the hall everyone knew who everyone was and so that was 
that was I mean it was sad for food it was sad for people who love culture food culture almost yeah I mean gourmet was well gourmet was the first one yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they, it was an interesting one. I'm I sorry. Mean, I mean, I had the, the, I grew up with the gourmet yeah. cookbooks. Can you, you describe know? briefly, since we're talking about this, what was the difference? What was Bon Appetit trying to do? What lines wouldn't they cross because that was gourmets? Or how would you guys compete for stories? Like, how did that work? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it was different back, you know, in the 80s. There was uh, Bill Gary was our editor at out in L.A., and he uh, he died in, right when I started in 2000. Um, I, we always viewed ourselves as like a West Coast, you know, where the produce is and kind of more, you know, our bread and butter was always the recipes and that's what people came to the magazine for. And we weren't trying to be pretentious or we weren't trying to, um, you know, we did, we realized that there was this whole middle part of the country that relied on us for recipes and we would of course stay on top of trends and drop stuff in but we were more recipe driven and i think gourmet you know when ruth took over um which i mean i think it's it's interesting to point out that gourmet had been in business for 60 years and ruth was there for 10 years and everybody now identifies it with like her magazine but it was wonderful back then it was wonderful you know absolutely it was a big I fan grew up of it. With it my mom started getting it when i was a kid and we had the book cookbooks that came out and i yeah. still have those no books. they're great i still have those leather bound yes, volume one and volume here, two yeah. but i think the big difference was whether it was an actual thing but people once you're perceived in the in the media in the world like no matter what ba did we would always be kind of the stepchild to gourmet because they would dedicate 5,000 words to, you know, hummus in Israel or something like that, which is cool. They were more travel-oriented. They, they were had more Masamoto would write a poem on the peach or something <laughs> yeah. like yeah. that. I mean, they did, and they were a little more political. They were, they, 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 more were. Political they were. They were. When Ruth took over. And, and, and whether that led, you know, for whatever reason that Condé Nast decided, you know... To pull the plug. To pull the plug. I mean, there's certainly people like us in the studio that want to read that stuff and that's always the the hard thing living in New York and kind of you know seeing all the trends and all that is what what do what does the average consumer want do they want to be lectured to do you know do you set the example we had a big debate about wild salmon versus farm raised salmon it's like most people are buying farm-raised salmon because that's what's available and it's relatively inexpensive. It's quite and expensive. because it can be bought fresh, fresh which year round, perceive as being better. better. So, do we make a stand? Of course, we're not going to tell people that you should not eat. And if this might be controversial. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, you should try to get wild salmon, but I can't sit there and tell somebody to spend twenty-two dollars a pound on wild salmon. Correct. When all I want is for people to eat fish as opposed to fast food or whatever. Right, right, right. So that's always, and that's something that we're always dealing with the Bon Appetit. So I think, to answer your question, long You were trying to be more, instre- more mainstream. I, th- I think mainstream, whatever that means. I mean, I think we were, you know, recipes were our bread and butter, and that's what people came to us. And if we could influence them in any way by having cool front-of-the-book stories or featuring Patrick, which we did last November. That we fancy know. picture. Actually shot right we right around that. the corner here. Yeah. So we would... We that would... actually had the best quote ever about animal rights. I really appreciate you editing what I said correctly. Change oh. it to make it sound better. <laughs> but it was very, very cool. Uh, thank you for that. No, and no. The year before, you that same picture was of Ann Saxelby posing, or a couple of years earlier. Which is a beautiful photograph yeah. 
of cheese. It's on our radio website. Well, Anne is beautiful, so. And now, um, tell us some of what what are we going to see in the magazine? Like, uh, I know there were a few issues where it did not list an editor in chief. Ah, you're very observant. And now, now, now you have one. Yeah. Yeah. Now we have one. So So the May the May issue just came out, uh, which was our travel issue, which was Italy this year, and that was kind of half the old regime, half the new regime, because we had had a lot of stories in the bank. But I think you'll see a much denser, richer experience. I think we were going for... um, There's so much knowledge of the people on staff, and I'm not sure in the past that we were getting that knowledge on the page. Um, And there was a lot of kind of set ways. um, Whenever you... I mean, you know, Barbara Fairchild had been at the magazine for 25 years. There was a lot of people who were lifers there. You know, she was like a mentee of that guy who passed away. And Bill Gary, yeah. I mean, yeah. she she started there as an editorial assistant. You know, yeah. like like myself. So, you know, there was a lot of ways set in their ways, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, it it ran beautifully. Um, well, but it made uh, a real brand. Yeah, I mean, you know, for you better say Bon Appetit, and people brand. people know that. So, I think just getting that information on the page, I think. Maybe not just being dedicated, just, I mean, we're always going to have tons of recipes, but instead of just giving people recipes, we kind of want to teach people about techniques, um, be much more dynamic in how we approach a subject. I know we have a huge pasta primer in the May issue, which isn't just 10 recipes on great pastas, but kind of like don't throw out the cooking water or salt your water, stuff that, you know, some people take for granted, but a lot of people, and I think... You know, we have to be wary of appealing to the people who cook a lot, like you, Katie, and then people who don't cook at all, like you, Patrick. Thank right. you. Let's take a short break here. Thank you for officializing Come back in a, in a minute and uh, talk about what you actually do and being the BA foodie, foodist. <laughs> foodist. Because you're the restaurant critic for the Sitting movie. alone in the dark, wasting my time in the park, because I've got nowhere to go. Job till the market fell out. Tried hard to borrow, but there was no help. Now I've got nowhere to go. I need a job for these two hands. I'm a working man. Nowhere to go. One last look at the land. Auctioneer with his gavel in hand, and he said. All my life Broke my heart Then took my wife Now I've got Nothing to show I need a job For these two hands I'm a working man Nowhere to go Wandered aimless In the city With my dirty work boots And old straw hat and hand A song by Woody Guthrie This land is your land It ain't my land I'm a working man With nowhere to go A working man With nowhere to go Oh man, that's so sad Andrew Knowlton Yeah <laughs> No, so, fortunately uh, Andrew still has something I know, I was like, oh, Andrew... <laughs> 
Are you still got a job? Working at Bon Appetit <laughs> when it all, but it was smart that they kept you because, like Thank I you, said, Patrick. you were their New York uh, soul. You know, like you were really the face of that whole magazine. That was a face in New York. Yeah, I mean, I can say that because you were there. You know, Barbara was here a lot, but it was you know having to compete with she the had a food and face wine. For the radio. You were more the no, just kidding. No, uh, Barbara. Like I said, I'm a big fan of Barbara's. Um, so let's talk. This it is Easter. So I'd like to know, like, how is Bon Appetit covering Easter, and how do you celebrate Easter and big holidays? I mean, do you do the Christmas goose, the Thanksgiving turkey, the the New Year's ham? I mean, are you uh, big yeah, family well, tradition? As guy? far as BA Bon Appetit, we always, you know, this time of year, always have a Passover story always have an Easter story. This year we have Michael Simon, Iron Chef Michael Simon yeah. from Cleveland. From Cleveland. Oh, I, I just went to one Lola. of his restaurants. Yeah, yeah Lola, Lolita. He did he's a, nice a bunch man. of restaurants. Yeah. He's a really good guy. He did, a, like he did a Greek, obviously a Greek menu, which nobody celebrates Easter quite like the Greeks. Um, myself, so my, my, my wife and daughter are in Norway right now where Easter, I mean, they don't, they're not religious, but they, uh, they certainly, they take the whole week off and celebrate. For me, I That's crazy. I grew up in Atlanta and Passover must have been huge. Passover is huge there. Yeah. <laughs> uh ham. No, we so we we have the traditional stuff. I mean it's, You don't have a southern accent. I know. Well I'm from Atlanta, which Thank is kind of like God. not and plus I went to school in Maine, so they beat it out of me up there. You went to Bowdoin? I went to Bates. Oh, the Bates, other, yeah. the dumb one. Went to the, the dumb, dumb one. The dumb school. Just that people think of Bowdoin first. <laughs> or Middlebury. Um, so I grew up, I mean, I remember, my dad is a physician, so in the South, you used to pay, and my dad's not that old, but still in the 80s and 90s, they would pay, some of his patients would, for goodwill, would bring him a country ham from, you know, they were from far out. So we would always have a country ham, a couple of them hanging in the basement, hmm, aging. Nice. Um, you lived in the city proper? We lived just, you know, it, there's, there's no Smyrna city proper. A, it's a series of neighborhoods, basically. It's a series of, uh, yes. I lived in kind of Roswell, Sandy Springs, which is right along the Chattahoochee River. Hmm. Um, so we would always have country ham on Easter. My mom would always make biscuits. We'd always have pimento cheese. Hmm. Uh, my mom also made something that I still make, which is a buttermilk cucumber soup that we would always have nice. on Easter. We should yeah. ask Andrew about that. Andrew is going to be coming we on will. after Andrew well, and talking about us, Southern. Right? Uh, yes. I actually, well, now that we know that your, your family your is gone, too. Yeah. we want you to stay through all the shows Well, and now. also the fact that Andrea was just in the Bon Appetit kitchen She was in the week. test kitchen. I did I mean, a big... Uh, we, we used to have a story that ran in Bon Appetit. I don't know if it's going to run this October, but uh, for lack of a better title, we call it the foodiest small town in America. And the first year we did it, we gave it to Durham... Uh, the kind of triangle Durham Chapel so I actually went down to Lantern which is Andrea's restaurant and did a bunch which she's you know just a stone's throw from the Carborough Farmer's Market which is you know easily in the top 10 farmer's markets in the country pretty amazing place it's funny when people ask me the foodiest town in the country I always imagine Portland, Oregon is a city of just pretty cool it is Seattle's a pretty cool city for Uh, food you know it's funny I don't like Seattle I find there to be a lack of I mean there's fresh fish and stuff awesome fish and I don't even like fish I mean an electric restaurant scene and culture then you get to Seattle and you're just like wah, wah. yeah it's a little oh. I don't know it's a little too big for me I, I, I like Portland I mean I think in any it's like San Francisco you kind of people chefs get in the same kind of rut in the same mm-hmm. kind of mentality and 
obviously we live in New York, but sometimes we lose sight of how many different things chefs are doing. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you eat in Portland, which I just did a story on Portland, or we've done a few stories, but I was out there last summer for about three weeks. And there is a a certain kind of monotony to the food out there. It's good. Jack, can you play that clip? That might be asking too much of Jack's technical engineering. But oh my god, that is just where 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 young people go to retire. No, no, it's about like uh, you know, is it this farm and is the farm good enough? But I mean, that actually feeds right into what you do. Oh wait, just like I'm listening to this. This You're gonna love this, Andrew. More for me than you. God, you have beautiful eyes. Everyone tells me that. It's not quite that. Hi, hello. My name is Dana. I'll be uh, taking care of you today. If you have any questions about the menu, please let me know. I guess I do have a question about the chicken. If you could just tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, The chicken is a heritage breed, uh, woodland-raised chicken that's been fed a diet of sheep's milk, soy, and hazelnuts. Okay, this is is local? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to ask you just one more time, and it's local. It is. Is that USDA organic or Oregon organic or Portland organic? It's just all across the board organic. Hazelnuts, these are local. How big is the area where the chickens are able to roam free? I'm sorry to interrupt. I have exactly the same question. Four acres. Mm -hmm. Give me just a second. I'll be right back, okay? Okay. Okay. Anyway, that is just uh, one of our (laughs) points. We love playing that over and over. Really? I, I wouldn't order a chicken that was only raised on four acres. Yeah. That's too small. <laughs> there they. Or that only ate hazelnuts. Oh, dear. Well, it's funny. We've been talking so much about meat. You're talking about hams hanging. This is about chicken. Like, there's this whole movement. We're going to be asking this to our future guests also. I'm like, what do you think about this whole don't eat so much meat movement? And how is And yet at the same time, everybody is writing and talking about and pork. About and heritage. But is, or is even this, not. Is I this mean, just, different than the vegetarian? vegetarianism movement? Well, well, no, eat think, meat, yeah. but not yes. too much. I mean, right. Mark Bittman, Michael Pollan, like, right. that's been their message. It's, eat it's meat, meat, but not as, too much. Meat as a condiment now. Yeah, and, right. and, but at the same time, it's like people are in restaurants are ordering, you know, the special chicken. I mean, you're naming the farms. It's all very religious, and, you know, you have to feel better about yourself because you're eating, you know, special meat from special places. I mean, I think from, from covering restaurants and then how we cover it in the magazine, I think there's definitely a shift right now in terms of you know the premier chefs in the united states and around the world whether it's renee redzepi in in copenhagen at his restaurant noma Mm. i think they are they're doing more creative stuff with legumes and vegetables and you know the whole grains and all that and so i think that trickles down to other restaurants and then ultimately consumers so I mean, I eat more pork than I ever did, but that's because every restaurateur puts it on their menu also. And I, I think And I, also they put on cuts that you've never had before. Ne- Why is I mean pork belly is now on every freaking menu yeah. everywhere. And it's still one of those things that even when we write about it in the magazine, you have to be careful because you get letters or emails about I can't find pork belly. Because it, it is if you live Outside of a certain place, yeah. that sure. it's well, that's hard why to get. We it. have an established mail order campaign at Heritage Foods, like to send to a lot of cities where you it's can't just hard. get. Or if they can get it, it's certainly not you know from a local farm. I mean, it, it, it's kind of a reality check. Like we did a pimento cheese uh, macaroni cover. It was, I think it was mm-hmm. in March, and it had. Uh, usually, you would just use red kind of pimentos in the south to make pimento cheese but these had pepidou peppers 
right. in South Africa. And we didn't put a source for them or anything. And I don't know, not that I take those things for granted, that I can go down to Fairway or Whole Foods or and Zay buy them. Or, yeah, or, yeah. or anywhere. And we got so many emails about what are these things, wh- where do you get them. So it is this reality check, and you realize that, you know, we sometimes we live in our own little world, realizing what people have yeah, access to. Yeah, New York to City, practically. I mean, even D'Agostino's is selling on their olive bar, which didn't exist right. ten years ago. Um, they're selling pepidus on their olive bar. But even bar. in New York, I would say, you know, you could go to the Meat Hook in Williamsburg, or you could go to a few other butchers in New York. But like to find fresh pork belly. I mean, you can't walk in everywhere. I don't even know if they sell that at Fairway. I mean, if you special order. The old-timey stores, too, like Simchex or something like that on the east side, they're not going to have that. No. So, but, I mean, to get back to your question, I think there definitely is this shift in, you know, the fact that I'm consume quinoa on a regular basis now or or bulgur or farro or any of those things. There definitely is this shift, and, and I think... You still, I still want to eat meat. I want it to be a smaller amount. I want it to be of uber high quality to know where those animals came from. How often do you eat meat a week out of, uh, what is that, 21 meals? 21 meals. I would say, yeah, I try to, st- I mean, I'm kind of with Bitman. I try to stay away from meat for lunch. I usually have some sort of sausage in the morning. I my southern roots still. I have to have some breakfast sausage. Um, <laughs> so what? 10 meals, 20, 15 meals? I'd say half at half. least. Yeah. So 14. But I also eat out, you know. Well, that's actually half of 21. That's two-thirds. 11. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, he's saying he has sausage in the morning and he might eat meat at dinner. Yeah. And the only meal that he really avoids meat is lunch. Well, then, is yeah, lunch. then actually he eats a lot of meat. I eat yeah. a lot of meat. Breakfast and but dinner. we're talking about, what, three ounces of meat as opposed yeah. to, like, what we used to eat, which would be a... A 12-ounce or 14-ounce porterhouse. Are yeah. those pork days chop. over, the 14-ounce porterhouse pork chop? No. I, tell us, because we sell People want them. tapas uh, <laughs> style, smaller No, portions. I mean, I think in New York and when I, you know, I was in Austin, Texas recently, they Porterhouse for Two is on every single menu right now. Hmm. The markups on those are incredible, yeah. but they're making money. So I think it's not. I mean, I just think it's people are more aware. Hopefully, they're becoming more aware of where their food coming from. But I think you know, people know like you should eat less of that. You should eat less of like processed bread products. You know, What's I mean, the- that's the big thing for me right now is like. I'm certainly I don't have any issues with gluten, but I do and forget Atkins for a minute, but I do sense that like if I go through these stages where I eat a lot of bread products, I can actually feel it, you know? And I think I, I'd rather eat those whole foods with a lowercase W, um, like meat or like, you know, sugar snap peas or ramps than than kind of eating or eat a whole grain. Or eat a whole grain. Yeah. I mean, that, as opposed to refined. I mean that that whole hippie thing that used to be so you know you'd <laughs> oh, walk the into the whole so crappy. and it would stink and all that mm-hmm. when you walked into the market. But now it's like that's what we're eating. You know, we're eating that. Let I'm, me ask you this: How much do you think? Um, you know, just to talk about the magazine and and the kind of influence that a magazine like Bon Appetit with 1.6 million subscribers, um, how much influence can you have on? pushing the middle part of the... I mean, on the coast, everybody's tuned into this stuff. Right. In the middle part of the United States, it's not so much. Um, you know, the big cities have it going on, but the big some cities of the smaller have access. cities... 
don't, and people aren't really that educated. Do you feel like your magazine is able I, to drive trends to a certain extent? Or yeah, are you responding I mean, I, to readers writing in and saying, I want, for instance, one of the nicest things at Bon Appetit's, you know, is they're like, I had this recipe and yeah, such yeah. and such. I love that feature. You know, are people like writing in more and saying, wow, I had this incredible quinoa salad at, you know, such and such a place. Can I get the recipe for that? I think that? You're, you're getting a lot of that. You still get, like, I had a cheesecake at the Cheesecake Factory. Can can I get that recipe? And it's like, uh, no, but I think we can influence it to, to a point. I mean, I think there is somewhat of a backlash against, I bring up the wild salmon, or if you want to talk about heritage pork or any of that stuff, like, you can't force people or tell people that to be a moral person that they have to buy $22 a pound pork. Uh, we don't sell that. That's the Mangalista movement, but whatever. But I, I no, I heard whatever the price is, I can't, I can't force people. Heritage pork is expensive. Patrick. It's expensive, but not proportion. If, I mean, it depends on how you feel about more... portions. I mean, if you think that it's okay to spend six or fourteen dollars proportion for a family meal, six dollars proportion—that's less than McDonald's. I just wanted to be said, and it's being compared to eighty cents a portion, which makes people sick and where the animals suffer. So I'm we just have saying to start... it's a problem of perception. It's also a problem of reality in terms of what people can afford to buy. I mean, we get letters commodity, all the time. Commodity meat it. is cheap. Once and a month, once a year, yeah, uh, once twice a month, a week. absolutely. So what then for? they should do that once a year, and that's what. But we Andrew, should be what's your take around. on that elitist uh, claim about? Because we talk about this a lot. Yeah, no, like, no. I think there's there's one thing in saying you know giving statistics and saying like you can afford it and it's not this. But when somebody sees when they go to whatever butcher, they go to Whole Foods or whoever, and they have pork that's raised sustainably and and it and it costs tk amount of money and then they compare that to the pork chops that they were raised on and they have to feed you know five kids at home they kind of take that personally like it's just food and if, if you're not in love with food and, and food right. is just energy for them it's hard to convince people so the only well, way we, the only way we can do that i think is by encouraging them in recipes or subtly, you know, saying that this does make a difference. I mean, our, I think the most important thing is to get people to cook. Because if they cook... <laughs> I love saving. You. you know, if they, get, if they cook at home and they're seeing their ingredients, then I think you have a relationship to food that you don't have if you go out to sure, eat all the sure. time or you're going to some sort of chain restaurant. So mm-hmm. I think that's like... You know, you got to get people, It's you know, it's just whether it's kids or you got to get kids involved in cooking. You can't just say, eat this or buy this meat. I got into food because I started cooking, not because I started going out to restaurants. Right. Yeah. It's just, you know, on that same level, going to the movies is an outrageous, elitist, ridiculous, must be stopped. We must fight against people going to the movies. It's $12 a person. Yeah. Oh, no one says that. that. No one says that. Yeah. So I think people need, I mean, including me, I think that's a ridiculous statement I just made. People go to the movies. And so it's okay to think that the poorest, you know, family in downtown Detroit could afford a $110 ham that comes to $2 a person for the meal. And like that has to be encouraged. And, you know, even a guy like Michael Pollan is like, I can't get uh, involved with tweeting heritage because it promotes an elitist argument. You know, for, you know, I just find that 
I can understand I why you find deep, it frustrating. No, but it's not frustrating. I mean, I, I think it's wrong. It's morally wrong for the farmers that are maintaining a higher standard. And B, it's not true. The sneakers, going to the movies, putting gas in the car, you know, people, you know, and I always say you can't judge a movement on the lowest, poorest percentile of America. But the mo- You have to do the yeah. majority, the bulk, that middle class. And if they can do it once every 20 days, promote that. But the movement, I think the movement which we're all part of yeah. and especially you Patrick I think it's it's um and I'm not this is not referring to you now but I understand <laughs> I think I'm part of it too but it's a little bit of preaching to the choir all the time about we should do this and we should do that and I've had conversations with you about how do you get good Vermont cheese that's relatively inexpensive into a bodega in New York City mm-hmm. and I think that movement is how do you get quality products that you know maybe or not they're not you know uber and the pig hasn't you know got a massage every day but is better than the usual industrial junk that you buy at the supermarket and you have to we now as food people whether it's editorially in a magazine or through a company have to find some way to broaden that you know and whether Mm -hmm. it's whether it's rick bayless a couple years ago trying to do some burger king stuff and that failed miserably but Nate How I, did that fail? Well, well he, he was he was pillory. He was yeah. He was just taken under and beaten by yeah. people. And then Rachel Ray did a similar thing for With, Dunkin' Donuts. And, but she was also on the like the national obesity children. And, yeah, exactly. But and, then you and have, her first book for children was right. like a and, gross trap. And then you have Nate Appleman who was Chipotle. at Chipotle. Now he's at Chipotle doing his thing. So those are people find it in those subtle ways. Like I think sometimes we think it's going to happen in this grandiose way or if Jamie Oliver going to LA and teaching, you know, pouring salt in a bus or something. I mean, that but but that guy probably has more effect yeah, than, no, than Mario Batali. Like that dude that dude comes over here to the US and has Makes at least big... started a conversation yeah. about that and I admire that. Now let me ask, is TGI Fridays that has a ten dollar and ninety nine cent jalapeno peppers? appetizer i don't think it's that much but it's like 9.99 is that outrageous are we are we railing against it just why would frank reese the heritage turkey farmer of america why is anyone talking about that guy what about the jalapeno poppers at tgi fridays i'm just wondering is there also a movement against how expensive tgi fridays is no. For the for the quality Why? of food they're getting the markups on that food is probably more than the markups at jean georges yeah, in terms of quality yeah. of food, you know right, that right, they're right, paying right, right. for. I don't know. I find TGI Fridays outrageous. Right. You know what I mean? But yet we can't. We don't talk about that. But we will look to that dude. We in will Vermont. parse out. You just, yeah. We will be critical of him, and we will distance ourselves from that small farmer in Vermont. We have nothing to do with it. Meanwhile, TGI Fridays. TGI Fridays is serving twenty million people crap. Well, if you, and getting rich, if you care about what you put in your mouth, then you're you're an elitist. I mean, that's the way it's always been. Whether it's on me going on TV sometimes yeah. and people judging that stuff, but I think again, it starts with it's not telling people that they should buy this ingredient or they need to support a farmers market or buy local. To me, it's getting people again. I hate to come back to this, but it's it's a getting people into the kitchen and cooking their own food because I truly believe to have a relationship to have a relationship with food and like the daughter that I'm raising right now hopefully 
I don't want her to be an elitist. I mean, whether she eats oysters now or squid, I don't really care about that. I just want her to have a relationship, a healthy relationship to food, mm-hmm. where it is something that she finds pleasure in. And I think if you if you cook your own food, you will naturally grow into what we're talking about and, and, and be willing to pay because you realize the benefits of paying mm. more than you know, an awesome blossom or whatever they, the onion thing is at, at TGI Fridays Outbacks, or whatever yeah. it is. Now, let me ask, what's up with goat? Why hasn't goat, which technically should be one of the cheapest, I mean, we were joking before we started the show at the bar here at Roberta's that, you know, goats can You start every show at the bar here. Yes. <laughs> yes we, we have do. our Fernet-Branca um, shot, which, you know, um, costs three, $3. Yeah. And so, uh, but that's elitist. <laughs> People don't need Fernet. And so anyway, but um, we were just saying goats. <laughs> um, goats uh, could live on rocks. I mean, they could basically are eat, closer they could eat to the chicken yeah. than they are to the cow well, in terms can, of but can they, grow they anywhere. are a very cheap animal to raise. Yeah. They require little care, little in the way of added value feeds. So uh, why are they browse. not more popular? Or why have they why never broken meet... past ethnic restaurants? And what yeah. is Bon Appetit doing? Are you personally thinking about Well, we've, we've had a few goat goat recipes and of course we have to put a source and it always is weird when you have to put a source for food and give like a web address to order food off of because I don't think that is realistic for a lot of people sure um, I think again it goes back to cooking and you know the more chefs use you say pork belly more people want to make it at home and more people make goat and there's traditions of eating goat obviously in Mexico and the Caribbean. Yeah. Most of the rest of the world. Most of the goat. yes. It's the most commonly eaten. It is the most commonly eaten in the world. protein in the world. Is it really? Yeah. Of So I think in what we were talking about earlier, goat cheese production is so high and it's relatively easy to make goat cheese. I mean in terms of other cheeses. So you have all these male goats you running have the around. Bucklings, what yeah. what do you do with them? So I think Hopefully we'll get there and, and chefs will learn. I mean, I just think it's naivete that a lot of people don't know how to what? cook goats. So there are a lot of chefs down, who have tried to make down, it work. Absolutely. Or is it people up? No, well, I mean, I think for us, it, you know, if we see something that, you know, chefs are starting to play around with a certain protein or a vegetable or whatnot, you know, and hopefully our readers will go, then they'll go to their local supermarkets and ask. Because every town in the United States has access to goat if you really want it, yeah, right? Yeah, grow anywhere. I mean, every Mexican community has some option to get Caribbean. barbacoa. and yeah. yeah. So those, those are the kind of things. That, this has been happening for a while, this whole goat movement. But it's just, you know, it's, it's like pe- getting people to eat fish with the head on you know i remember when that was such a big deal at restaurants like oh take the head off and you still go to restaurants and you see that so it's just when people become more comfortable and if they cook it at home they realize that it's great one of my fears though and this is the same thing that happened with pork belly or cheeks or any kind of offal you know fifth quarter thing is the markup becomes so much you know what was a traditionally a cheap whether it's hanger skirt was a cheap piece of meat now becomes so expensive. Yeah, it's a yeah, premium. Yeah, yeah. You know, I can go. I can go to a place in Brooklyn and buy rabbit, which should be basically free because, <laughs> and you know, you're paying sixteen dollars a pound for a rabbit. And so, how am I supposed to tell people go buy a rabbit? You know. Well, um, it's funny. I was just thinking, talking about this pork belly. I think our fifth most sold item on the internet. We sell all the cuts of the pig, some cuts of beef, chicken, turkeys. Our fifth most popular item is pork belly. And it's such a random product. I mean, you wouldn't think 
people would really want that, and yet it's our fifth biggest. And it's $75 for a 10-pound belly plus 19 shipping, 75 85 95 So $95 for 10. So, you know, it's $10 a pound. 10 bucks a pound for fat. Which if someone eats eight ounces of it, yeah. for something you're, that, you're, for you're something, spending $5. But for something that, in, especially in the American South, used to be so disposable. I mean, yeah. that's what they would just... Sure. That's where baking, you know... Well, Jessica Harris told she us that great about, story. Yeah. Where you know why well, I don't know if why, I'm even allowed where to the, say where this. The, where the phrase "high on the hog" came from? Because then, when the an old plantation were freed, story. you know, and he would say, you know, come help me kill the hogs and get your traditional chitlins and, right. and a basket of offal and all that stuff. You know, um, the the slave then was no longer a slave. Responded, you know, no, master, you know, it's funny. I think I, I eat a little higher on the hog. Ah, uh, I see. It's kind of a cool <laughs> story. But um, and that's on our best of CD, which you can listen to on our website. So this has been great. I knew you would be a great guest. I know you'll have you to come back. And I'd love really to. Good. A BA. I'm show. a Brooklyn kid. It's just a short drive. Short drive. And his uh, his driver drives him, but yeah. he's not a leader. My bon appetit you mean he driver. Doesn't come with yeah. winged is that sandals. Now? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so um, we're going to take a short break, and uh, we're going to come back with Andrea Rusing and talk about uh, Southern food traditions, which we yep. covered a little bit with Andrew. He wakes up early in the morning Puts on his only blue suit He hasn't quite mastered tying his tie on The way his sweet Sarah used to It's been years since he's talked to the good Lord He's not sure he front yard today he goes to church on Sundays now no he don't know the words to the old rugged cross but he sings them the best that he can cause he knows that his angel is up there in heaven and he sure Never could get him to go Now he's up bright and early There by 9.30 And sits on the very front row And he bows his head with the members And he shouts amen good and loud If only Sundays now No, he don't know the words to the old rugged cross But he sings them the best that he can Cause he knows that his angel is up there in heaven And he sure wants to see
Kids can't believe how he's changing They tell him their mama'd be proud And he's always asking them all to go with him He goes to church on Sundays now No, he don't know the words to the old rugged cross we're back with the main chorus on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my co-host and partner in crime, the one and only, the fabulous and the incomparable Patrick Martins. Oh, my God, I love you. And our guest um, has been Andrew Knowlton from um, Bon Appetit. He's the BA foodist. And Andrew has kindly consented to stay with us. Maybe when you we can get move a word on. in edgewise yeah, now. Maybe. Not the guest um, anymore. And now we are going to have the wonderful, lovely, and extraordinary Andrea Rusing. Who was just at Bon Appetit. Who was just at Bon Appetit, which is why Andrew's going to stick around. And Andrea is the author of Cooking in the Moment, a gorgeous new cookbook, which, by the way, Andrea meets my criteria for having five or more recipes that I actually want to make. And you are also the, the chef and proprietress of the Lantern Restaurant, correct? Yes, that's true. How are you guys? Happy Easter. Hey, um, happy yes, Easter. Yes, yes, let's celebrate the resurrection of uh, the planet, <laughs> the spring, and all that goes with it. So, Andrea, is the South rising again? Oh, it, it has risen. It, did it ever fall? I don't know. I mean, I've been here for 17 years now, so I'm finally um, starting to ID as a Southern person. I you think were from the like. North before? Yeah, I grew up in New Jersey and, um, you know, never thought I would be living in the South. And now my kids um, have actually said y'all to me. So. Oh, my God. I was just going to say you are mercifully free, as Andrew is. Of the <laughs> so that's a funny thing. Andrea and I kind of switched. You know, we, they only let so many in and out of the north and the south, so we kind of make up for each other. Me exactly. Being up here. So, Andrea, tell us a little bit about cooking in the moment, and then let's talk a little bit about since it's Easter, about Southern traditions, and uh, and then uh, at the end of this little segment with you, we'd love to chat for a moment about goats because I know you have an interest. Oh, I do. Um, well, you know, the book is uh, the restaurant is Asian food, kind of from from a lot of Asia, regional Chinese, Thai, Vietnamese, Korean, um, done with North Carolina ingredients. And the book is a little bit of Asian, but mostly seasonal home cooking, 10 ingredients or less, just really kind of in response to all the people that would say to me, I just can't go to the farmer's market and then go home and make dinner. Right. Because I don't have the perfect turnip recipe. There's a lot of turnip recipes, a lot of kale, a lot of, you know, basic vegetables from, right. you know, that are available in all, all parts of the country. But then there's some regional delicacies like ramps and figs and things like that. Well, things that we can even get up here in the north sometimes. <laughs> yeah. In about three months. <laughs> Although I heard, I heard that there was a bunch of ramps, um, there's ramps being sold down. for $17 at the Union Square I, Farmers I pay, Market. I paid six ninety nine for probably 15 of them the other day. <laughs> I felt like somebody had... It's so funny. Thank God vegetables are not like wild fish because I learned like in with the seasons, Florida, those fishermen catch all the quotas. And by the time those fish are, you know, in North Carolina, they can get their boats out, the fish are already, the quota's been reached. The quota's been met, and, and the fishermen can't, 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 can't go. But with vegetables, it's a little different. 
Right. Well, I had some she- I had some sheep's head um, last night from the on the grill with some charred green garlic, and I don't think there's a quota on sheep's head yet. <laughs> so, what is your book offer that other books doesn't? I mean, you know, I mean, there's a lot of recipe books out there. I mean, there's obviously a southern focus, but like, what have you tried to bring to the reader? You know, that's different than other recipe books. I think that the difference. With, with this book is that it's a snapshot of a really thriving food community that has a lot of fascinating people in it that um, yeah, and there's a lot of information in it you know about why grass fed is important or you know when is local kind of more interesting than, than organic and things like that and there's a lot of really good stories um, you know with featuring growers from this area and nice. characters from this area. Um, we've got a great seafood market um, that, you know, there's a lot, lot of information about kind of junk fish down here, but, but junk fish that's available all over the U.S. as well. So there's, it's the stories, I think, that, that makes the book different. And I can, I can vouch uh, when I did a story on Durham Chapel Hill area, I met a lot of the farmers that Andrea uses that sell at the Carborough Market, and it's... I think people think of it as being maybe this California Berkeley thing, but the the American South and a lot of it has to do with the old tobacco farms, I think. But the scene down there is amazing, and it's young people. Hopefully, that you know they'll see their their farms through one day, and they'll outlive them. I mean, mm-hmm. that's always the concern that the farms will outlive the people doing it. But I think if there is one kind of microcosm of how to do things right, at least from an out- outsider's point of view. Uh, when I've gone down to Durham, it's quite amazing. Yeah, there's a ton of young farmers here, and I think somebody was saying, you know, the other night, like, just the world is such a depressing place, and, you know, sustainability, the idea of it is not is not kind of getting me through anymore, and I just look around, and, and, and I think, you know, yes, there's a lot of a lot of sad things going on in the world, but when you see people going into farming who are 25 years old, who are farming on rented land, who are farming on borrowed land, I mean, every day I'm meeting people. It used to be 10, 15 years ago, I knew everyone that was involved in food here, and I'm meeting people every day that have been doing it for even a couple of years who I haven't met yet. That's cool. And Andrea, what, what, to what do you ascribe the new trend of, um, of Southern recipes and Southern style cooking? Uh, it's not a trend. She already answered. It's no, never I know. fallen. Well, no, but it has. I mean, <laughs> it's a trend in Brooklyn, I know. Okay, well, so even huh. in, uh, no, but I mean, when you look at the cookbook shelves, I was in Barnes & Noble a couple of days ago, and I saw your book, and I saw you know a bunch of other books that focus bon on Southern y'all. cooking. There's that new book, Bon Appetit, <laughs> Yeah, y'all. Virginia Willis. And I was surprised. I mean, because you know, I've been in the food business long enough to recognize you know, like there was in the 80s you know there was the Paul Prudhomme the Emerald the you know there was like and then there was a little dip in interest and Ed, Ed and Lewis of course and people like that and then there was a bit of a dip in interest and things changed and now it's like we're back you know and we're embracing almost like a new southern cooking um, which I thought is, is you now, know is really is an interesting news is, is it it could be true but you know like the world over crispy chicken salty ham <laughs> you know, long-cooked greens are classic flavors that, you know, are kind of universal and have a universal appeal. So For sure, that's true. And I would argue also that in the United States, like in Italy, you have the the food of the poor people, the cucina, pavera. I mean, that is what the role of southern food is making the most out of the little out things the you have. And I think that is something, yeah. you know, you get bang for your buck in terms of how you produce stuff. and And it is... You know, I've lived in Maine and I've, you know, obviously lived in New York, but I think 
there's still these traditions in the South that don't exist elsewhere. And I think people want to get in touch with that and talk about regional cooking. I mean, outside of New Orleans and the South, it's kind of hard to, you know, whether it's a, with the exception being like a brain sandwich out of Indiana, but there really, there are no (laughs) kind of... on whack. Yeah. (laughs) Shit on a shingle. But there are no, there are no... school thing. There are no like traditional, you know like you would find in Florence or you'd find in Puglia, and that's what the American South is to the United States, is that kind of... That region, every mountain, every new hill has a new tradition yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, to a certain extent, yeah, I think that's true. Absolutely. Now, what is it? So now the South, it's it's playing with the same ingredients, it's just what they do with it, right? Because, I mean, those ingredients that are available there are available everywhere, so is that right? And then, you know, what does the South do to foods, if you could generalize, that maybe wouldn't happen in Portland or, or you know, New Mexico? Or Minneapolis. Well, I mean, I think if you think about the Meat and Three restaurant, which is a kind of classic Southern restaurant, you know, people always associate or have this kind of, you know, wrong association with the, fat, with the South as being all about kind of unhealthy, salty, fatty food. But the Meat and Three kind of flips you know, the whole thing on its head, and it's like three vegetables and some meat. And so I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head um, in terms of just kind of making the most out of what you have. And, you know, we just, you know, pig's head terrine flies out of, um, flies out of our kitchen, you know, for the last couple of years, and it's been kind of remarkable. Like we, we do kind of like a Vietnamese-style south. Uh, with fish sauce and, black, and Vietnamese black pepper and white wine. And, um, you know, people love it, and Southerners love it, and they say that it reminds them of when, you know, they had, they had their, gran- their grandparents slaughtering a hog in eastern North Carolina. Mm. And, and it was head cheese. So and now, cheese, are people yeah. slaughtering a lot of lamb? I mean, is, this, uh, is lamb a predominant uh, feature on an Easter Sunday throughout the South? Um, you know, it's not, it's not in my household, but uh, we do pork here. But, you know, a lot of people do lamb, and there is a lot of, there is a lot of great lamb happening down here. Of course, um, there's Border Springs, um, and, and Craig grows some awesome animals. But so, Are you guys eating lamb up there? Uh, I think a lot of New Yorkers eat lamb. I certainly I had We're lamb last night, and I'm having lamb tonight. So, um, Andrew, you're probably doing a lamb thing, right? No, no. I actually, we did a story a couple months ago on country ham. So I yeah. got a bunch of country ham at work, so I'm just still eating those leftovers. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but um, when I was growing up, actually, it was a ham. We were Northerners, and even though my dad was from Louisiana, we did a, we did a, a ham every year for sure. Um, or maybe that's why. Is what about right? the goose? I'm sorry to bring this up. It's such a personal thing. <laughs> Not, listeners are tuning yeah. out. Does come on, Andrea. How come nobody's eating goose ever? <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, the per capita consumption of goose per person must be less than an ounce. I mean, oh, does anyone less eat? Than an ounce yeah, for less. Sure. I mean, who eats goose and why not? And does is there a growing movement or is there any movement at all for Christmas goose or whatever in the well, south? Well, duck, for instance, is a pretty good ingredient in the south. There's a lot of duck hunting down there, right? How about? People, do people raise geese for eating? You know, I haven't heard of anyone doing geese for eating down here. I did, um, I did buy one a couple years ago, and smoked it, and it was delicious. And um, yeah, but I haven't heard of anyone doing geese. A lot of people are doing ducks. A lot of people are doing duck eggs. Yeah, at Pat- the farmers market, yeah, Patrick, you can find those. I think you know more and more. Goose is just one of those things. It's it's difficult to cook. Is That's that right. why it is? Yeah, 
Well, I to think, cook it well, but then again, you have all that fat so afterwards delicious. in which you can cook so many other things, which is so great. Plus, I it's, mean, it's mostly dark meat. To and, me, you it's know, the byproduct that's valuable. Don't, don't like dark. Yeah. So, um, Andrea, sorry to be talking about all these food things, but um, oh, yeah, I mean, really all sorry. these meat things. No, I mean, just like not <laughs> sorry, chef. To the book. Yeah, here we are, meat. <laughs> The yeah, meat you're dealer. Really, really boring me with all this food stuff. <laughs> no, but was meat? Uh, meat is not a big component of your book, though, or is it? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of meat in it. There's certainly like a lot of meat as a condiment, and then there's a lot of meat kind of as a cele- celebration food, and mm-hmm. and and there's a lot of braised meat. There's definitely a lot of brown food in the book. No shortage of that. But I think um, <laughs> my approach to thinking about meat in the book was trying to figure out ways that people, you know, incorporating meat into celebration meals or just regular, you know, weeknight family meals that you didn't have to use so much. And so, like, I have a recipe for a grass-fed porterhouse steak in the book where the idea is you get, like, a two- or three-inch really, really big, thick steak that can feed eight people, and then you just grill that whole. So everyone is getting, like, a perfectly cooked, rosy slice of, couple slices of steak as opposed to kind of that style of buying the value pack of 10 steaks and half of them get thrown away. Yeah. Andrea, why do you have the Asian, such an Asian influence in your uh, cookbook? Well, when I moved here in the mid-90s, there weren't very many Asian restaurants here at all, and Mm -hmm. it was just, um, you know, it was a good move for me in terms of not going out of business, opening a restaurant Mm -hmm. that really filled a real need in the community. And, you know, there are a bunch of Asian recipes in the book, but I think in terms of the stuff that we do at Lantern, things are a little bit more complicated. They're a little bit more reliant on technique and a long list of ingredients, and I really wanted this book to be something that people could pick up and cook out of any night. Yeah, totally accessible, really nicely written recipes, I must say. I was very impressed. Um, but let's talk, let's segue for a second here, um, since we're going to have to um, move on shortly, but let's, let's get into the whole goat thing, because uh, you and I met over the fact that you were preparing to write an article about goats and using goats and um let's the obvious question is is are you using goat in your restaurant do you have goat recipes in your book and what goes good and with what goat? got you interested and what goes good with goat well what got me interested in goat was um was eating cabrito with people that work um in the restaurant that i work in the restaurant with and and you know looking looking to buy goat and talking to some dairy farmers here about goat and that's when we were talking about your no goat left behind idea that really caught my imagination and so I had a lot of conversations with just you know some dairy farmers down here about what about what they're doing with their young goats and then went to some friends um, house who were had just slaughtered a goat and did goat sausage with them and so nice. just kind of got into it that way but yeah I mean I, I don't have it on the menu at the restaurant yet and I haven't um, I haven't gotten there with it but I've been cooking it a lot at home and um, actually cooked it last Halloween and brought it over to a neighborhood potluck and the kids all ate it because they thought that I had said that it was roast ghost <laughs> oh, nice. Awesome. So, so Andrea, <laughs> maybe like you should put it on up. the menu that way. Like, uh, you know, we've always, this is Andrew, but we, we've struggled with putting goat in the magazine just because of the accessibility of it. And you say you haven't put it on the menu yet. Is that because, I mean, do you think it would sell if you put it on the menu or you'd have to do this whole PR campaign to kind of disguise what it is? I think it would I think it would sell to some people, but I think it wouldn't it wouldn't fly just as rabbit. I know in New York City flies off menus, right. but it doesn't here and yeah, so I mean I think we we sh- we need to kind of start working on it. We just haven't haven't done it yet, but I think people are hesitant and people don't, you know, I think when you feed it to people, of course, they're 
they're like, this is the most delicious thing I've ever eaten, but it's kind of getting them there. Right. And, and it's also, also for that the... ethical thing of like, can you really feed someone something that you're not telling them what it is before you tell them what <laughs> Mystery it is? Mystery meat. Well, fast food ca- cafeterias do that all the time. <laughs> but exactly. um, it is also very hard for the chef because basically you have to buy the whole animal. I mean, I think Bill Nyman briefly tried to sell goats in the piece, and that's very hard. I mean, to yeah. sell goat ribs. Well, and also, as you pointed out, Patrick, goats have very specific seasons in the sense that um, mm-hmm. they only kid twice a year. And so you can't, I mean, you made a very shrewd analysis about where Thank Bill you, Nyman went wrong, which was that he was trying to offer goat year round and goats, uh, goats only goats kid twice a year. Two, two week periods a year. Yeah, and I we mean, should eat every goat. And in then the we country. should eat every buckling that, that But isn't that, that part exists? of its problem? I mean, I don't think people want to hear that you can only eat it. To I think that's but good. There are other it's, things. We gotta eat goat. I mean, we in, only in eat shadro. Like restaurant week for right? goat. But nobody eats shadro. Sure, they do. Soft shell crabs, very specific time of year. Right. Shadro, very specific time of year. It's goats only I mean, hope. Let's put it that way. Is the, to have the real problem season. here. I see for the goat industry or the kind of nascent idea of a of a sustainable goat industry is that our slaughterhouse charges like about fifty bucks to kill and process a goat. Yeah, we That's pay better 45. than what we've yeah, right. We right. we shopped so around like also no very hard. I mean when you pay that and then you pay the twenty dollars a dollar farmer a might get for the actual carcass, yeah. it's it's hard to extract the money out of that animal. That's very true. And that is a real problem, and that's and that that brings up a whole discussion about uh, the fact that uh, you know slaughtering and processing has been so consolidated, and now there's only really big processing plants. And, we were partnering. You know, a guy named Ryan Ford is coming up from Virginia to meet with me in two weeks, awesome. and uh, we're hoping to have a kind of Virginia abattoir option. Beautiful. And he is just a very smart. Uh, so I have high hopes for there being. And there's Joe Cloud. I mean, there are there, there are small people there are small people and I. I think that is that is growing. How about down in North Carolina, where you are, Andrea? Yeah, where do you slaughter Are you your seeing meats? more more slaughtering and processing plants opening up? We we're not seeing any open, but we never really had a shortage of small independent mom and pop slaughterhouses to really? begin with because the way the legislation kind of worked here, they were allowed to stay open, and so a lot of people, you know, uh, there's been a couple ownership changes, and they've allowed, um, you know, they've been grandfathered in, and so what the problem we really have is kind of one of consistency and quality um, in these small places, and things are really moving along, and they've, you know, really radically changed in the last seven to ten years. So we do have a bunch, you know, I mean, I'd say there's probably, uh, there's six slaughterhouses within maybe an hour drive of the restaurant. That is completely unusual. I mean, in the Northeast, totally that unusual, simply yeah. does not exist. So, Andrea, will you come and be a guest in the studio next time you're in the city? I can't believe you were just uh, a few miles away and you didn't even uh, come into the studio. So, uh, <laughs> I would love I would love it. I can't wait. We'd yeah. love to have you. Yeah. How, how is the uh, book tour grind going for you right now? It's um I I kind of overdid my bookings a little bit. I had three events yesterday and um Ouch. and and a couple the day before that, but it's going really well. It's really fun and it's it's you know, it's that kind of thing you can go back to the restaurant and say, "Guys, I'm so tired. <laughs> I, I can't I you know, I, I've got to go home by nine o'clock tonight. I'm, <laughs> I'm, really, I'm, I'm milking it for everything it's worth. I love all these puns. <laughs> bookings, uh, milking, it, yeah, very you know, nice. It's all <laughs> very nice. So um give us how much does your book cost on um, Stores? It costs $35 at your local independent bookseller. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's called and Cooking in the Moment by Andrea 
Rusing, R-E-U-S-I-N-G. And beautiful pictures by John Koenig. Very beautiful. was out there with you guys maybe a couple months ago. John Koenig. Maybe he was on the food scene? He might have been on the food scene, yeah. And uh, tell me, uh, what is your lantern website for people who end up going down to the research triangle if they want to make a reservation? How does that work? It's lanternrestaurant.com. L-A-N-T-E-R-N restaurant.com. And where is it located? Right in the middle of Chapel Hill on nice. Franklin Street, right downtown. Beautiful. A stone's throw from the Carborough Market. And it's exactly. a great tourist area, actually, down there. It's an under... It's a great place to visit. Yeah, it's an underutilized uh, part of our nation, I think. I think there's a lot to see down in that area. Increasingly utilized, we think, too. Good. <laughs> Very yeah, well, nice. For better or worse, <laughs> we'll, we'll right? We'll send you whatever you need. Well, when people from New Jersey start moving down there, you know it's hit big. So. <laughs> Andrew, you've been a great guest. Thank you very much. And again, the book is called Cooking in the Moment, and we'll have you back very soon. Sounds great. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Five lonely days when I rode into town Down from the mine to lay some money down Stopped at a tavern they called Sweet Princess There I met the girl in the red satin dress Now she was scarlet as she Down. 
2010, EscapeMaker.com won an Emmy Award for their agritourism webisode. So this year they thought, why not bring agritourism and green getaway ideas right to you? Come to the Green Getaways Local Food and Travel Expo on April 30th at One Hanson Place, home of the Brooklyn Flea and former Williamsburg Savings Bank. Presented by Amtrak, Zipcar, and I Love New York, the carbon-free event will be a day filled with food, prizes, workshops, and kids' activities. Over 50 getaway destinations, from counties to local farms and bed and breakfast within a day's drive or train ride of New York City, will be exhibiting on the main floor and in the huge bank vault downstairs. See what's hot in sustainable travel and receive special show-only discounts. Bro NYC will be doing workshops on the green market, and Appalachian Mountain Club will offer workshops on adventure bicycling and hiking via mass transit. EscapeMaker.com will be giving away over 50 getaway prizes, ranging from zipline adventure passes to an overnight stay at Mohonk Mountain House. Travel greener, eat local. Come to the expo on April 30th. Get your tickets now at www.escapemaker.com. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great tasting, high quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway honey today. <laughs> 